0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Biodiversity on our planet is declining at alarming rates, but our understanding of the vulnerability of species to extinction is not equal. Scientists know most about the risks of extinction for mammals, birds, and amphibians, but information about reptiles has been missing. Authors of a new study of snakes, lizards, and turtles in 24 countries that span six continents report that over 20%, that's one out of five species of reptiles, are now under threat. But the study reveals some good news, too. Conservation efforts that have been aimed at birds, mammals, and amphibians are unexpectedly good surrogates for the conservation of reptiles. However, the authors caution that urgent, targeted conservation measures are still needed to protect some of our most threatened reptile species. Our guest today is Dr. Bruce Young from NatureServe. Bruce, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Bruce, your recent article in the journal Nature, which was published in May of this year about the patterns of reptile extinction is, is really fascinating. And to me, it raises many questions about the state of nature on our planet today. And I feel that it relates to the question of how we all must walk this line between despair and hope when we consider large ecological problems like biodiversity loss. Um, But before we move forward with the specifics of your paper, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the organization that you work for. I know that you're the chief zoologist and senior conservation scientist for an organization called NatureServe. And I also know that there are many nature conservation groups in the world. So I'd like to hear about what the mission of NatureServe is and how it operates and and kind of what its niche is in the world of of non profit organizations for conservation. Could you describe
1: that? Sure. Um, NatureServe's mission is to unlock the power of science to guide biodiversity conservation. Um, For us, what that means is providing the scientific basis for effective conservation. To do effective conservation, you need to know what species are threatened, where they occur, and what's threatening them. And so we develop databases that we share publicly uh, with the conservation community to help them make those decisions about what species to protect and where to protect them.
0: Um, You know, it would also be really helpful to hear about another critical element that you discussed in your paper, which is the International Union for Conservation of Nature, or the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species. Could you describe the Red List and what that means and, and why it's important for scientists who are interested in biodiversity?
1: Sure. Um, The IUCN Red List is the global standard for assessing extinction risk of species. Uh, It's uh, run out of the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, but it really operates through this network of 9,000 volunteer scientists that are arranged in taxonomic and geographical entities called specialist groups. Uh, So there's a specialist group for bears and another one for uh, specific kinds of fishes and fungi and all these kinds of things. And the scientists in each of those specialist groups are, uh, conduct what are known as uh, red list assessments and the information they uh, generate ends up on the IUCN red list. And the, the thing to keep in mind is the red list, it's a list of all species that have been assessed. So some species on the red list are threatened. Um, but many other species are not threatened. They're least concerned or, or, or near threatened or something like that. So it's 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 really a list of the uh, relative extinction risk um, of all the species that have been assessed.
0: I see. Thanks. That's great background. Um, let's get to your paper. Uh, just to start out, one of the things I really appreciated about your study was the way that you and your colleagues have mustered evidence and data from a tremendous number of sources in fact you have 52 co-authors and i'm wondering how you and your team assembled your assembled the team how did you get all of these people together
1: well the the co-authors are actually just the tip of the iceberg in fact um, as you read the paper depends on assessments of 10,196 different species that, inf- that those assessments were actually compiled by over 900 different herpetologists from around the world. Uh, so that it was, so it was, a, it was an enormous um, um, work. And in fact, one of the biggest challenges of the whole project was t- how to decide which to invite to be co-authors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, That's that's what kept me up at night. <laughs> so, I'm oh my God. sure
0: I, I understand how sensitive that can be.
1: <sighs> yes. Uh, but we worked um, it. So why, my, my, main role on the project was uh, compiling the assessments for the Americas. I I live in Costa Rica. I've worked in Latin America. My heart is in Latin America um, um, all my career. And and the way we did it in in Latin America was to work mostly through uh, national herpetological societies. So in Colombia, I got in touch with the Colombian Herpetological Society and said, oh, you know, we have this project. We have a little bit of funding. We'd like to assess all the reptiles in Colombia And then I I left it up to them to decide when was the right time to do it, who to invite and, uh, you know, how to how to organize a workshop where we got, you know, the folks that knew the best into a room and could go species by species and complete the assessments.
0: Well, that sounds like quite a process. Fantastic. You know, we hear a lot about the risk of extinction of certain groups of animals, birds and mammals and amphibians, you know, particularly frogs, for example, especially in Costa Rica. But very little about reptiles is known. And I'm wondering if you have any hypotheses about why it has taken so long to get to reptiles. I mean, do you attribute that to the sort of general fear of snakes that many people have, or is it more scientific that is attributable to the difficulties of sampling reptiles?
1: Uh, yeah it's a it's a really good question um, i I think that there's no less known about reptiles today than when we worked on the amphibians. I was part of the original global amphibian assessment that was completed now nineteen years ago uh, and completing a global assessment has this wonderful catalytic effect on research because you don't get it right your first time around we I, I'm sure we made all kinds of mistakes. Um, with the reptiles, but it's out there in the public view now. And there's a million graduate students and other researchers out there that want to prove us wrong. And so they, now they have a motivation for publishing what they already (laughs) know and, and, and to go out in the field. I mean, I don't know how many students were inspired by that amphibian assessment to go out and find species that we said, Oh, no one can, no one has seen them for 20 years. They might be extinct. And, and so, and, and, and our knowledge of these species just improves by leaps and bounds once we, Complete these assessments,
0: right? So that's sort of the basic baseline, I guess, to launch and motivate other studies that then will go into greater detail about what are the elements and the stressors that might induce extinction or or being threatened. Um, I think one of you know one of the big findings that, as I read your paper, was that you concluded that about twenty one percent of reptile species are now threatened. I was wondering if that percentage, that one out of five reptile species surprised you. Was that something expected or unexpected by your team?
1: Well, in fact, it was expected. Um, About 10 years previous to our study, uh, a group um, out of the Zoological Society of London had completed in what's called a sampled red list, where they took a Random sample of one thousand five hundred species of reptiles, and assessed all of them, and then use that to extrapolate out and predict what's the status of all reptiles. And that study came up um, with an estimate that nineteen percent were threatened with extinction. So they came pretty close. (laughs) Wow! (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. Yes, I mean, with, with the with the Sampled assessment, um, there's a lot of statistical things you can't do, and you can't look at the regional variation and and all the kinds of cool stuff that we were able to do with the complete sample. But still, it gave us us, uh, a good idea of what to expect.
0: Another key point in your results was that you made was that habitat makes a difference. And you stated that although reptiles inhabit arid habitats such as deserts, including many rare ones, uh, you know, deserts are really widespread here in Utah. Most reptile species occur in forested habitats where they might be suffering from threats such as logging or conversion of forest to agriculture. And you found that 30% of forest-dwelling reptiles are at risk of extinction compared with just fourteen percent of reptiles in arid habitats. So what are what were your conclusions about the implications of that for conservation? Does that mean we should be pouring more efforts efforts to conserve them in forest than desert? Or what, what 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 is the kind of implication of that, I guess?
1: Well the first implication is save the rainforest. I mean, we heard it <laughs> 30 years ago and <laughs> it's not quite so popular as it was anymore, as it, as it was in the past, but um, it's still, it's still the bottom line here is that, yes, um, reptiles are renowned for being unusually diverse in arid areas, but it turns out arid areas aren't that threatened. I mean, they're lousy places to do agriculture and to do much of any other kind of development, and so those species in the arid areas um, are, are, are not particularly threatened. As we know it today, I mean, there's a whole other discussion to be had about whether they may be threatened by climate change, and we're overlooking it at this point. Um, that's something that really needs to be looked at. But the bottom line is that where there are the, even though there are relatively more species in deserts, there's a lot more species in forests, uh, especially in tropical rainforests. And those those threat those species occurring in the rainforest are threatened by exactly the same for, factors that are threatening the amphibians, mammals, and birds that live in rainforests. And so that's that's where the the big conservation issue is.
0: Uh, you know, an- another aspect of your key points actually brought me some optimism, brought me some uh, uh, sort of leaning more on the side of hope than despair as I read your paper. And that was that efforts to conserve threatened mammals and birds and amphibians. Um are more likely than you expected to co-benefit many of the threatened reptiles. So, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: That's right. I mean, that's what was uh, nagging in the back of my mind all these years. You know, after we finished the birds, mammals, and uh, amphibians, those studies were all finished um, uh, more than fourteen years ago was that, oh yeah, maybe those reptiles, there's something special about them and they're doing weird things and the rare ones are in weird places and we're just completely overlooking them. They're falling through the cracks of our uh, conservation estate and they're really going to be in deep trouble. Uh, But in fact, um, I mean, you know, as this study was the last of last study of the, the, the last of the four classes of what we call tetrapods, the limbed vertebrates, um, to be completed, it allowed us to compare our results with those for birds, mammals, and amphibians. And, and we were surprised that in fact, um, you know, we'd heard this story before it's, you know, they're threatened by the same things that threaten uh, these other groups.
0: Got it. Well, in some ways, I would interpret that as being hopeful, that um, making efforts for one group might also benefit another group. And so I think that's, <clears throat> that's a really positive thing as, a, as an outcome of your study. Are there any other major findings and trends that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Well, I mean, we, we need to talk about climate change, and, and, and it's not a major finding of the study. It's, uh, it's more a shortcoming of the study. It's, uh, I guess I'm not very Please good at- go right my my it. right I would here. love
0: to hear this, Bruce. <laughs> I would totally love to hear it. I'd love our listeners to hear this. Please do.
1: Well, and so, the, I mean, the method that we followed, which was to uh, assess all the species against the IUCN red list criteria, is is not the best to address climate change for two reasons. One is that all the threats that we look at, you know, you know, there are these criteria, we have to follow them so that you can compare across species groups and all that. Um, you have to look at the next three generations or 10 years, whichever is longer. So, So most, you know, most reptiles are little lizards and little snakes. And most of them, their generation time is what, three or four years. And so we're looking at, a 10 year horizon, 12 year horizon. And there's, there's not that many places where we have good documentation that climate change is really gonna cause a big impact in the next 10 or 12 years. Uh, so that's, that's one point. And then the other point is that, um, again, be, you know, following along these well-established criteria is that you're only allowed to document the direct threats to the species uh, for consistency and as you know, climate change can have many indirect effects on species. So, climate change can cause uh, uh, invasive species to incre- increase, and they can cause declines in, in reptiles. Climate change can change fire conditions, which then affects the habitat where that reptiles depend on. Climate change can affect where people live, and that affects habitat destruction. Um, these are all indirect effects. So, we didn't. We didn't quantify those uh, in our study. Uh, And so I think there's still a lot to be done to really document the effect of climate change on extinction risk in reptiles.
0: That actually leads to my next question, which is um, in terms of the study that you put forward, what would you recommend to your team or to other teams, other researchers, uh, your graduate students, your postdocs, in terms of specific areas for future research? What would you like to see as kind of next steps from this from this um, this piece of work that you guys have done?
1: Well, probably two areas. One, the uh, the climate change work that we just talked about. Um, and then the other is that there are so many unknowns. I mean, I think we had something like 15% of the species went down as data deficient, which meant that we just didn't have enough information to say what the extinction risk was, to put put a species in a category. Uh, so uh those species could all use more in-depth um, study. There's been some theoretical work that suggests that data deficient species um, are more likely to be threatened um, than you'd expect based on how threatened other species in the group is. Uh, so that it could be that, that actually a lot more than 21% of reptiles are threatened once we sort out those DD species, we call them.
0: Well, what I think is one of the really important things about your study is that Especially by publishing it in a journal like Nature, which is so prestigious and and well respected by the scientific community, that you've really laid the groundwork for others to say, you know, look at this paper. They, the that there's been an established paper that states that that these species are threatened and therefore that justifies an investment on the part of National Science Foundation or Conservation Group to carry out future research on these particular species or interactions or phenomena. So I think your paper has a lot will have a lot to do with, with future research about conservation and risk assessment. You know, your study drew upon the work of many previous studies, obviously, and I'm wondering what efforts your team has made to make the data that you have Collected, gathered, analyzed, compiled to other scientists. Can can any scientist get a, get them? Or can the public get access to it? Uh, how does this? How does what you've done in terms of building on others' work now lead to others building on your work?
1: Uh, well, that's a good question. And uh, we live in a different era today than even ten or fifteen years ago in the scientific community. We're in the open data era. Um, you're not allowed to publish a paper in nature unless you make all your data um, publicly available unless you know there's some sensitive data for human research or something so uh if you go to where the uh the page for the paper on the nature website go to the bottom there's an open data state or a data accessibility statement and you click on the links and and <laughs> watch out it's like a fire hose it's way more wow. data than you're prepared to work on it's like i mean there's there's gigabytes and gigabytes that will get downloaded if you click on those links. So all the data are there because there's there was a lot of spatial data. So all the GIS data uh, to be able to analyze spatially the information, these, these grids that are covered the entire world are available for research. But for, for kind of more regular people, the other thing is that Uh, That much easier way, if you're interested in a particular species of reptile, is you go to the IUCN website, that's iucnredlist.org, and you can just type in the name of a species, you don't even have to know the scientific name, you just type in the common name, and up will pop the specific assessment of that species, And, and there's all the information that went into our study. And in fact, that, that site is being constantly updated. You know, these assessments go out of date. And so in a few years, you know, these species will be reassessed and you'll get the latest information right there.
0: Fantastic. That is great for our listeners to know that that is available to them. Every person who's listening can go ahead and do that. And I might try that with some of my favorite species, too. I'm wondering also, uh, this kind of leads to the idea of why the public, why people should care about this. And in your paper, you stated, if each of the over 1,800 threatened reptiles became extinct, that would represent the loss of 15.6 billion years of phylogenetic diversity. I'm wondering if you could explain what you meant by that.
1: So, you know, each species is evolving along its independent path. We look at, you know, how, how many millions of years it, it's taken since a species has diverged. Uh, and we built this phylogenetic tree. Um, like a, It's like a tree of life, of like a branching pattern of where species and their ancestors diverged uh, for the entire clade of, well, reptiles are actually three different clades, but or uh, are, are three different trees of reptiles, but there's the, the snakes and lizards are one, and the crocodiles are another, and the turtles are, are another. Uh, and in fact, there's a fourth, um, the tuatara. Tuatara is right. Bizarre species from New Zealand. And then what we did was, uh, you know, for all those branch links we call them, what that that length of time um, since a species was uh, uh, diversified, we 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 added up those branch links for every single one of those eighteen hundred and twenty-nine threatened species, and that came out to fifteen billion years. Of wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that is a really cool. I don't know, a really cool figure to think about. It's, it's also tragic when you think about what if they did go extinct, but, but it's a kind of a different way of thinking about the importance of, of not allowing these reptiles to go extinct. But I'm also wondering, you know, in terms of people who might not be keyed into the value of diversity for its intrinsic value, why would we care about extinction of these reptiles uh, just from a, you know, from a human standpoint?
1: Right. Well, so I mean, there's a number of different answers to that in, in, in many different levels. I mean, in, in one level, you know, many reptiles have an incredibly important importance culturally. Many indigenous c- cultures, for example, rever uh, turtles. You can go to Mayan ruins and see different kinds of reptiles represented there. There's Asian cultures that rever turtles as being um, the key to long life and happiness. And then from an ecological standpoint, reptiles play important roles in the ecosystems where they occur. Um, The the average reptile tends to occupy kind of a middle stage in the um, food web. Uh, they, They eat insects that in turn eat plants, and reptiles themselves are in turn eaten by larger vertebrates like mammals and birds and some other reptiles. And so, if you removed reptiles from an ecosystem where there's a lot of them, you'll find all kinds of imbalances. It's, you know, as ecologists, we find it's awfully hard to predict exactly what's going to happen because there's so many unforeseen things that can happen. But you'd expect, you know, insect populations to maybe become out of whack, something else that you weren't like, some plant could suddenly become really common um, inexplicably because, you know, the, the, the herbivore that ate it is no longer uh, is no longer there or, or whatever it's, it's it's very hard to predict and it's probably going to be different in the many many different kinds of ecosystems where reptiles occur.
0: Well, let's shift a bit, and I, I'd like to talk about your own career. You're a chief zoologist and senior conservation scientist at NatureServe you know, what to me sounds like a dream job to many people interested in understanding and contributing to preserving biodiversity. And I know you started out as a graduate student at the University of Washington, and your dissertation was on uh, geographical variation and avian clutch size of the tropical house wren, a a very basic uh, piece of research. And then you went on to co-direct a field station in Costa Rica and do conservation work with the Nature Conservancy in Latin America, and then on to other more senior conservation positions. And I think Wow, that is quite a journey. And I wonder if you have any reflections on your own career and also any advice about building such a career in conservation to our listeners, especially to our younger listeners.
1: You know, when when I was a graduate student, uh, I mean, I, I distinctly remember my second or third year in grad school. This was, you know, before the digital age. I I stumbled on some professor on his Bookshelf had a bunch of copies of this new journal called Conservation Biology.
0: Yeah, I remember that.
1: <laughs> and I looked at it, and it was like every single article was fabulously interesting to me. I was reading those those issues from cover to cover, and I was like, "That's what I want to do." Um, but I was in a department where you know you only did basic science. (laughs) There was no conservation biology department. I mean, there weren't, there weren't many anywhere in the world at that time. Um, So I, I completed, you know, my academic um, uh, degree in a, in a basic science, but knew that I really wanted to get into conservation. And the other thing is I got really lucky in timing is, is my career. I, I, I rode the biodiversity boom. Like, People didn't talk about biodiversity as a thing back in the 1980s or 70s before that. Um, but it became big and the, you know, the the save the rainforest um, movement as we talked about earlier. Uh so there became a lot of jobs uh available uh at that time. And I was and I was lucky to be able to get uh uh in, in be in the right place in the right time to to get some uh what turned out to be very, very interesting jobs.
0: Yeah. Um well I think our time is almost up but but Bruce I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to share this fascinating piece of research with our listeners. I really enjoyed learning from your perspectives and all of us at Utah Public Radio wish you the best for your work in the future. Thanks so much Bruce.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah you can listen to us every Thursday at 10:30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.